Well, hello and welcome everyone to the Interchange podcast uh, brought to you by Link, a low-fee pay-by-bank platform that is currently revolutionizing the way we process payment. In today's episode, we'll discuss some of the current startup market trends uh, happening at the moment. We'll look at profitability. We'll look at what investors typically look at uh, when they look into investing in startups. And also we'll dive into understanding the importance of efficient payment solutions. I'm your host, Daniel Nielsen. And today we have a fantastic lineup of guests who will provide valuable insights into the current market landscape and the role of payment in the startup uh, success. I'm joined today by my co-host, Nabi Awada, CEO and founder at Link. Welcome, Nabi. Hey, good to be with you, Daniel. And I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Alex Ferber, a uh, partner at Green Egg Ventures, and Peter Muller, at managing partner at Sea Change Fund. Welcome, Alex and Peter. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So let's get started. Uh, welcome to the interchange. So, Peter, Alex, I, th I thought before we start diving into uh, today's episode, maybe to our listeners, you can give a little bit of intro about yourselves, just a uh, high level. Maybe we'll start with you, uh, Alex. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Michigan. I've been in New York now for a little bit over 10 years. I uh, came here wanting to work at a startup and, and wear different hats and be part of a growing company. But as luck would have it, I ended up getting hired to work at a venture fund uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, completely changed my life. Uh, you know, fell in love with venture right away, just meeting people, solving important problems. Uh, and uh, uh, I just I fell in love with venture. I ended up leaving uh, the firm I started at called Metamorphic Ventures in 2015, co-founding Green Egg in 2016. Uh, we've invested in 52 companies so far out of our two funds and uh, focus on early stage uh, B2B software. Thanks, Alex. Awesome. And I guess, Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I uh, started my career on Wall Street, working for Merrill Lynch, covering TMT. Uh, hated it. You know, saw, saw some of the levers of wealth creation, as well as, I, I would say, more interesting problem-solving opportunities in 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 tech and bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco and landed at a early B2B SaaS company called eShares, now known as Carta, and was an early PM on their uh, valuations team. So built out the 409A, the ASC820, and, and built out to scale. That was an awesome experience. Then moved into tech-oriented private equity for a couple of years. Again, hated it and uh, you know wanted to kind of get back more into the let's say more of the startup field so venture was the next logical step came to see change been here for five years and uh, yeah have really enjoyed the process as, as well as supporting not only just pre-seed and seed stage business, businesses but also the ecosystem here as a whole uh, especially at the time that it is now there's a lot of growth and incredible companies coming out of this area yeah and, and one interesting thing too I, I would say is that not only is there a lot of uh, new interesting companies that are coming out i think one of the the major problems that we have is the economic crisis that we've been heading into and and also the the universal kind of uh, venture crunch that we've all kind of witnessed and felt the 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 impacts of it also breeds a certain type of entrepreneur and, and those entrepreneurs typically last much longer 
uh, than the entrepreneurs that are built during the best of times. So you, you, we have a lot of kind of case studies from the last uh, VC crunch that kind of have already provided us with those kind of key indicators. So I, I think you guys are going to be investing in a lot of really interesting companies and a lot of interesting opportunities. Uh, and we're kind of excited to see kind of what the future looks like. Absolutely. And I, I would also add to that right, capital, sure. capital scarcity breeds good founders, especially in Canada, because I think that the, while the venture market here remains, yeah, not like it was, but still strong, uh, you know, you guys being in Vancouver, I, I think the amount of just very sharp and, and articulate and thoughtful founders we're seeing come out of Vancouver top notch. Come on, keep it going. No, okay. <laughs> I got to sell my book. I got to sell my book. <laughs> and that's a wrap, folks. Okay. No, uh, no, that, that that's that's interesting. Uh, you, you're, you're mentioning some of those things, uh, Peter. And when you've been kind of looking over the last couple of months, because it's been interesting what's happening right now from an investment and startup. Uh, it's been pretty shaky over the last couple of months. And what what are what are some of the trends right now you're 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 predicting and you're seeing from your perspective uh, both of you alex uh, peter as well nabi because i i know you're 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 in there as well uh looking at funding that you could kind of share with our listeners and l people looking uh, as they're building their startups right now and coming into today's market yeah yeah i i'd be happy to share i mean it's it's not getting any easier to raise i think you know none of us really have a crystal ball and uh are you know we'll know what, what it will look like in a few months i don't think much is going to change over the next few months i think it's going to continue to be difficult to raise capital you know it's it's difficult to, to hire um it, it can be very difficult to hire for companies right now as well um and, and i think that will continue and you're going to have teams that need to be creative in, in how they you know, go to market, how they get those initial customers doing it with, with less, uh, with less funding. And, um, as we've been talking about, you know, those, those are the founders that are most resilient and, and sort of are able to build that, that tougher skin. So, um, I think things will continue like, like the way that, that they've been. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I think overall it's not, it's like not a bad thing for the market, you know, for something like this to be happening right now, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's instilling good behaviors. Um, and yeah, I think it'll just continue. I, I have like a, oh, Go sorry, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Peter. I, I'm, I, I think on, you know, I, I agree with Alex on many points. One thing that I am concerned about is a narrative that I, I think venture is very sensitive to whatever narrative uh, is, is present in the market. And I think we'll see a lot of, portfolio companies of venture funds shut down in this quarter and the next. And I'm I'm very concerned about what that will do to the narrative mm -hmm. in the minds of not only venture investors, but more importantly to LPs that the venture investors have to answer to. So if mm -hmm. there if there is that bad narrative, that's going to make LPs even more hesitant to call capital and therefore there's less capital in the market to make investments. So I, I think it could get worse in in Q4, uh, but again, like Alex said, I don't, none of us have a crystal ball. I, I think we've we've always had this in the back of our mind that it's oh my gosh, it's going to get worse. But you know, I look back to some of my own commentary about a year and a half ago, and 
I was still saying the same things that I, I do now. Uh, I'll, I'll be- We're waiting for the bottom to drop out. Right, right. Uh, but again, you look at public market and things seem to be on the up and up a bit. Uh, so it's, it, it, we're, we're still in this, this age of uncertainty relative to not only public markets, but also private markets. But do you think, yeah, so just I, to double I, I click feel... on that, just a question for both of you guys. Do you think that's because the LPs themselves, the high net worth individuals, whether you're talking about family offices or whatnot, is it because they've reallocated a lot of their um, kind of not disposable, but kind of liquid funds into less risky investments? Is that the kind of trend that we're seeing now? And, and there's less allocation towards high risk VC investments or, or is there something else at play? Um, it's a great question. I think I think that there's just you know less. I, I think you, you have to look at LPs and, and you have to split them up. You have to look at sort of the high net worths. Uh, um, you know, family maybe family offices fit in there as well. You have to look at the more institutional side of, of investors, right? I think a lot of institutional investors that do this for their jobs all the time appreciate the, that that there are ups and downs in, in the market. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really important for them is like those really those realized returns over time from funds. So I think, you know, there's less of a sense of urgency for them to be investing in funds right now than in the past. But I think they're still going to be looking for those realized returns. You know, a lot of them don't really put as much. Of course, they want to see that you're, yeah, you're doing well, but they're not putting as much on the TVPI. And then what we're all talking about right now in the market and is are, are sort of the high net worth, the family offices that might be looking into other areas to be putting their money. So, you know, I, I do think that a part of it is that they are putting their money into less risky areas. You know, maybe they don't want mm. their money locked up for seven to 10 years, like they would need to in, in, a, in, in a venture fund. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like that those, those investors just don't have the same sense of urgency to be investing in, in, in venture funds that, that, that they have in the past. So they're still kind of interested, but there isn't that like that yeah. pressure, that FOMO, you know, all that growth that we've been seeing uh, in the past. To go off of that, that, you know, split between, let's just call it high net worth and then the rest, in my opinion, I think that, you know, I, I we have several high net worth individual LPs in the fund, uh, as well as some that I'm trying to court, but those ones that I'm trying to court They've allocated so much over since, gosh, 2015. And if they didn't see liquidity in some of their portfolio from, say, those 2017 and on vintages, they're at the point now where, like, I've just allocated way too much to venture. I think for mm-hmm. more of the institutional and family office uh, side, you're they're always going to keep an asset allocation, you know, towards venture but what i'm starting to see is that in a crunch you know there's there's such a variance in smaller funds or earlier stage funds that it's very hard to do manager selection so there's there's brand identity marketing uh manager history and and performance that mainly pushes these high net or pardon me multifamily offices and more institutionals towards more of a, you know, a brand name or, or some, someone that's on their say sixth, seventh, eighth fund. And they find, they find comfort in that. And that's frustrating, especially at the stage that we play at, 
because these people aren't really doing the series A's or series B. They're doing more and more seed and sometimes pre-seed in this case. Yeah, one one thing I can tell you from my perspective, because I've raised before the entire kind of debacle of FASVV and all of the crunch that happened. And, you know, after one kind of seismic change that I've kind of noticed is the heavy focus on profitability and path to profitability more than anything else. If you're not profitable, at least you need to have a path to profitability, which is something kind of, that was always part of, you know, fundraising, but was kind of pushed out um when we had the the the, the days where you could raise you know what is it like a a 10 10 20 30x multiple on your 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 revenue or projections which is definitely not the case now but you know as we kind of saw a lot of that happen i've noticed that my conversations are longer now getting to a yes takes much longer while while it took you know two three conversations before so from your perspective, is that something that you guys are also noticing from your own conversations? Because obviously you have to, you have to, you know, be liable to not liable, but you have responsibility towards your LPs as well. Is that something that that's been mandated down, uh, or is it something that you guys have kind of taken on personally based off of the climate? I, it's difficult because there's just such a lack of activity at A and B that no one's mm -hmm. picking up the tab to where. You know, I, I think if we say had a 10 companies that we invested in in six months, we would bake in, we maybe would bridge one or two of those in, you know, years, years previous to 2022. We don't have that luxury to bridge 10 companies now, let alone one to where there needs to be the levers available to say extend runway another six to nine months or even a year to show the metrics that are desired. Because all of these conversations that you're having with investors and other founders are having with investors, the goalposts are constantly moving. It's no longer this, hey, re reach this benchmark and we'll kick off a DD process. It's a lot mm -hmm. more baked into this unit economics market. A, a lot of people are, or, pardon me, a lot of investors are making it more difficult because their jobs are much more difficult because no one is picking up that tab at A or B at the moment. And, you know, we don't, we don't know, I think to Alex's point before, before we really kicked off here is, is there, there is the model of venture is changing a bit. There are these, you know, contractions of capital that we don't know if there are even going to be series that many series D or E companies in the future. Yeah. That's speculation, but there is a probabilistic chance that, you know, series precede through maybe B or C is really where it comes out. And we start seeing companies start to IPO at, at a much, much lower enterprise value. So profitability is, is, is very, very important for the longevity of our investments, the founders, companies, and our LPs investment dollars. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I completely agree. I mean, as a fund, you know, Green Egg Ventures, we've always invested in companies that are post-product market fit, you know, have are generating revenue or under a $10 million valuation. And so we have that Goldilocks zone, which is super important to us. And, uh, you know, profitability is, is crucial for a lot of reasons. Firstly, in our research, we found that companies that are able, there's a more of a correlation between companies, like the amount of time that they're able to stay alive and their multiple on exit 
than the total amount that they raised and multiple on exit, which mm -hmm. means that it's not that a company's raised 20, 100, 200 million dollars. It's their ability to stay alive for a longer period of time. And profitability goes, you know, hand in hand with that for, for a multitude of reasons. Obviously, firstly is profitable companies get investment. So it, that the profitability takes care of the ability to, to raise capital. Profitability obviously uh, prolongs uh, the, the runway, right? So um, that, that, that that's also just a, a crucial piece um, as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so you know, just the company being more investable and the profitability itself increasing runway is crucial. And if that company can stay alive for a lot longer, they have a better chance of, of getting a better multiple and they can make their own decisions because they have they have the freedom to do so from the money that they're generating versus being at the whims of investors needing to raise multiple rounds, et cetera. Well, and I would add and on to that. I think it's the whims of not only investors, but also customers, right? It's It's not only more of a numbers game for investors, but also securing customers. Because I, I, I think what's happening a lot of times in this environment is that instead of going for best in breed for B2B SaaS solutions or enterprise solutions, people are consolidating and going for best of suite just to just to yeah. be more cognizant of balance sheets and, and burn for these customers. So it's it's kind of a two-sided thing to go off of Alex. Yeah, extending that runway allows you to play the numbers game that has gone down, you know, unfavorably for longer and, and improve those metrics. Uh, so that's that's kind of the other side uh, relative to customers, in my opinion. Yeah. So, like, if you were to consider the the key role of profitability at the moment for fundraising, especially if what what I would see I, from my perspective, there's a great chasm, right? It's between series between seed and series A. We all know that it's always existed, but I've seen that profitability has gone from a series A conversation down to a C conversation. While the idea and like early trend markers are, are, are still at, at pre-seed, um, considering that profitability is taking more and more um, kind of um, new in the decision making for, for VCs, what are the other potential kind of trends that you see over the next, you know, six months until the end of this year that are important indicators or, or markers for what what uh, startup founders should be kind of focusing on. If profitability is one component, what are the other pieces, I guess? I think that uh, while the market has changed a lot, some, some things never change uh, as well at, at the same time. And what never changes, and, and one of the reasons why we invest in Green Egg Ventures the way we do, is, is, is really having a product that is, you know, a need to have for your customers um, and, is solving a very important pain point, right? So if a company is being, if a company is profitable, it's because they're able to uh, um, to pull out enough revenues from their customers to 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 warrant their profitability, right? And in order to, to extract that money, you need to be solving an important problem for them. So I think that you know everything is sort of connected to each other, and um, you know companies will continue to need to. Uh, you know, give their customers the best possible experience. I guess one one thing that we could highlight in this in this world right now of limited resources is, you know, versus having a startup that's trying to take on the world and and you know uh, fix this broad problem, being really able to you know really understand who your beachhead customers are, what their problems are, 
who has the, the largest pain point um, and um, you know, how, how are you serving that specific group and then growing from there, right? Once you become profitable with that smaller group, really having the freedom to take the business in any direction that you want. So I think, you know, right now, and you know, you really just need creative thinkers, people who are willing to challenge their own assumptions and, and hit the moving target of, of product market fit, um, you know, versus having a, uh, in stone view of the market and, and the needs of, of other customers. Well, I, I think Alex covered the majority in it and saying, Hey, some things change, some things don't, you know, yeah. There's got to be a good team. There's got to be a good market opportunity. Customers have to really like your product. You have to be solving something of value for them. Uh, I, I, I think that Alex simply uh, covered that quite well. Another thing too is there has to, there's, we're living through this generative AI hype cycle. It's, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want to say, hey, there has to be something that is AI centric on your roadmap because, and I know Alex will speak to this too. Sometimes it feels like jazz hands when you look at a product roadmap or you hear a pitch and it's like, we're doing this year one and then halfway through year two, jazz hands, we have an AI application. So I, I think I would be meaningful about how AI can augment, uh, you know, your team and your product to better solve something with more efficiency and, and say at less cost. More importantly, I think there should also be a data play as we see yeah. barriers put up and more emphasis put on, on what data you're capturing, how you're tagging it and synthesizing it. Because, I mean, that's that's the kind of your chicken and egg issue with, with creating an AI component of your product is you need that data, but for in order for it to be valuable, it needs to be proprietary in some sense. So, so really having that in in your in how you're building the product and looking at your product roadmap is important. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think like a lot of I I do some angel investing here and there, and I do see data as being a, a moat on some people's you know presentations. And when you actually double click on it to figure out what they mean by that, they don't, they just put it there because it's a buzzword and a keyword and something that, you know, is, is kind of happening. But I think understanding what that, da what data you're going to collect, how that data is going to be then repurposed and utilized, and then what type of product opportunities and innovations come out of it. And not necessarily just following the bandwagon of what's popular or hip right now, like generative AI, but really having an actual utility that's fundamentally grounded in the vision and the product that you're building um, and not just being kind of a me too is, is really, really key. And I, I think a lot of people, at least on in the pre-seed side, when they're kind of developing their idea, they're just trying to hit certain terms and they don't really have an idea of what these terms really mean in terms of the end product and the use cases that they've, they've built out. So I, I fully agree with you on that side. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right now, you know, they were kind of leaning on the buzzword and then hoping that attracts funding somehow, you know, and saying, oh, AI, well, I gotta, I gotta incorporate it. Uh, but I, I agree. And some of the things we're, we're looking well, at here, Link, is data. Well, no, one, like time, data yeah. one, one time I, I was looking at the startup that I was going to put like a check into and I was looking into it. And one of the things that I saw I, I'm not even, I swear to God, I'm not kidding. And this was, at, at, you know, during the time where blockchain and everything was popular, there were uh, an AI crypto blockchain solution. I'm like, 
like are you just trying to pull everything together at the same time like that's not the way it works and then when you when you again you double click on it there's no kind of real you know uh meat on the bone there it's just kind of all skeleton um but yeah yeah it's uh, you got to be careful because a lot of startup founders i think they underestimate how in tune a lot of the vcs are or a lot of investors are because most of these people are fundamentally you know they're they're drenched in the op- in the opportunity space itself so they to understand things beyond just the keywords and the the surface layer like when you talk to some investors and you're talking about generative ai they're going to ask you things like okay what data models are you using how is this a proprietary technology what are the the opportunity areas where are the risks they, 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 they go deeper than just looking at your keywords so i i, I think you know have have a bit more meat on the bone pretty much yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I see a lot of companies that are throwing buzzwords in, into their pitches. And I think a, a mistake a lot of companies make is they're like, you know, we're differentiating with AI when in, in reality, like a lot of this is just going to be commoditized in, in the long run and you'll have off the shelf products. But it, it's more about understanding how, how does AI impact your industry and how does it make you run your business most efficiently? But it's, it's not like the differentiator itself or it shouldn't be the differentiator itself for the business and and i can actually totally back you up with one word jasper jasper is built off Mm -hmm. off on top of chat gpt like that's how they built Mm -hmm. jasper so yeah like a lot of these tools are going to be you know commoditized they're going to be consolidated and just saying ai is not is not really anything anymore or generative ai or, or machine learning what do you mean what do you mean, really? That's what it comes down to, and how are you going to do it? Well, and, and this is this is where having somewhat of a plan as to how to properly tag and, and collect data if, if that opportunity is available to you so that when there are these easy lifts to where you don't have to build and maintain your own proprietary model, you can plug yeah. in a third-party service at a fraction of the cost of building and maintaining your own. Yeah, like what is your data strategy? Right. So based on, I've heard data from, from, from all of you. Uh, so when you're looking to, to invest too, are you also potentially looking under the hood, how they're mining and harvesting data or how they're looking to put that on the roadmap? Because from my experience, a lot of companies are talking about the data and how they're leveraging that, but it's always fundamentally something a lot of companies struggle with big or small startups is getting really deep understanding on on the data they have available uh, within the company itself. I think a preceding seed. Yeah. I'm just I'm we'll we'll split this up here. A preseed, I just want to know that you have a plan. Yeah. I'm, <clears throat> I'm not too concerned about what you're doing with the data, but keep an eye on it and make sure that you you know, your data strategy is intact and makes sense. And you're tagging it properly and all. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And and I would say at seed, I look, I'm not as, I'm not much more scrupulous on it, but I think there needs to be a bit more execution around data, but that could be, hey, it's in our roadmap for, you know, two quarters from now to, to actually implement something because these startups might not have enough frequency or data of data frequency to justify devoting resources to uh, really taking advantage of the data that they collect. Data scientists are, are expensive. 
very but you can start the tagging before yeah you, you can start tagging and looking at inputs and outputs before so i, I agree with and, that. and that's that's very that's where i get on the say data strategy point is that if you're if you're not being cognizant of what you're pulling in then you're going to waste four months of a very expensive person or persons reanalyzing that data retagging instead of them coming into something where they can you know take two weeks format how they would like and, and then start taking advantage of it. Do, do you think that person will still be needed in, 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 the, in the near future? Or do you think that the technology itself will get uh, powerful enough to, to tag it and you won't need to hire someone to do that for you? I think in the near You're going to always need someone. Uh, yes. I, I think a lot of the roles will be replaced, but you're going to need a different type of specialist. You're, you're basically, it's like... Um, it's like the the remember the the story of like how the car replaced the buggy and and the, the horse, right? You you had like a the driver the guy who was actually feeding the horse and taking care of the horse and riding the horse. Now then you moved over to the car and now you you need a mechanic to fix the car. So that's the same kind of analogy is that instead or uh, you you have you might have your driver because Bentley was around and all these other kind of fancy cars at the time, right? So you just basically are putting a different role and consolidating a bunch of roles into one. And that's what you're, where you're going to have the efficiency, but you won't need probably all the same uh, engineers and data scientists to kind of be tagging, cataloging and looking at inputs and outputs and, and running tests on different like models. You probably have some type of gener generative AI that's actually generating other AIs, but you're going to have a specialist to oversee uh, probably do some type of systematic analysis on it and probably do the inputs themselves, which are specialized in syntax. Yeah. And I, I think, I think you can, we'll, we'll see a lot more data scientists as freelancers that can hop in and, you know, say kind of like the car example, you just need to go and get your oil changed every 5,000 miles. Um, sorry, I don't know the, how that's denominated in kilometers for the Canadians on the pod here, but uh, <laughs> the, and I think we're, what's really going to be important are data, are data engineers just to make sure the data pipelines are up and running and working well. And I think as the, you know, the, the walls of understanding in this space become lowered through these technological advances, more of these data engineers will be able to pick up some of those tasks in terms of maintaining and even even developing models. So I there will always be a need for that person. It de it depends on what capacity. Oh, I think I think I think that's a good and I think we'll move on to to the next topic here in today's episode. And we've talked about profitability from from a startup and how that's become more prevalent uh, this year from all of you so maybe nabby you could you could tell me a little bit about from your perspective and then we'll unpack it with, with, with our guests too at looking at payments if you look at payments in terms of because if you think about payments now you're typically always looking that as processing payments as a cost center uh and i know from your point of view nabby and and really how you founded uh, your own company is how can you turn that around and looking at it from a whole different lens in terms of profitability. Yeah, so I, I've worked in Europe and Latin America, but I've also drawn a lot of experience and not experience, I should say, inspiration from Asia as well. When you look at what's happening in the payment space, there's traditional payment gateways which have their own costs uh, attributed to it. 
we go after markets where the range is anywhere from 3.5% to about 5% being charged. And I always tell everyone this, it's usually the difference is even 50 basis points between a profitable company and a company that's actually losing money or being neutral. So how can you make a, a, a sizable change in that distribution of funds when it's being processed where it can actually benefit a company? So we built a, a solution and I've, I've heard it being called kind of akin to um, to WeChat in, in Asia. But obviously, when I was in Latin America, we built a solution like this as well. And you've seen kind of the, the rise of alternative payment solutions that have kind of started uh, having a global footprint. And I, I think based off the data in 2022, there was 59% of accounts that, that are generating uh, transactions globally. So not in the US, obviously, because this is not something that's really North American but globally are running through these alternative payment models. And that's looking to kind of increase to about 71% by the end of 2024. So we created an alternative payment engine that not only reduces the cost of transacting by up to 90%, but also increases AOV by 48% and then also return visits or retransactionality by users in the same pay cycle um, by about 86%. So when you're looking at all these market, all of these values, what you're seeing is that even transacting with an alternative payment model, as long as it's built out properly, not only saves you money and it's a sizable change. Like I said, it 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 boosts you beyond profitability, but it's it's enough to actually change consumer behavior and reward them for transacting with that alternative payment model. And and that's really what we built with with our product. Looking at you guys have intimate knowledge of a lot of this information, so it's not anything new, but from your perspective, kind of knowing that a solution like ours can change the profitability angle of a business, especially with marketplaces and multi-sided marketplaces specifically, as well as as e-commerce, what are what are the what are the values that you see, uh, or what is the value that you see for company to kind of look at a solution like ours or, or consider alternative payment models, knowing and this is always something I always got to clarify, knowing that we don't rip out or replace your existing payment solution. We don't remove your your ADN. We don't remove your your Stripe. We believe that in a complementary uh, payment solution. Yeah. Well, you know, any uh, any company that is is able to you know operate more profitably, well, I think that we're we're both a fan of that. So you know, Nabi, I know that we always like to refer you know you to the startups that that we're working with and some of our own portfolio companies. Um, uh, so yeah, we're I'm I'm all for. Writing this, I think I think that Peter, uh, you know, made a great point that when you're dealing with a lot of you know really early stage companies, pre-seed and seed stage, you know, there's a there's a lot of limited resources, and they have to really focus their attention on like you know serving the customer. But you know, how how a founder thinks about payments is probably how they do everything else, and and, and paying attention to that to those details and and knowing the best way that they should be operating, the best way that, that they can be profitable is going to reflect on other areas of their business that they could also, you know, find profitability as well. So, um, you know, this being out there helps, helps these startups be more profitable, helps small businesses compete with some of the larger businesses that are able to, you know, ne negotiate and have these banking partnerships themselves. Uh, so I think that what Link is doing just aligns perfectly with, with Green Egg Ventures and, and our values. Yeah, and I, I would add on to that, I think there's the the retention and loyalty aspect and and the buyer buyer build question that comes into play right and and 
what Link can offer relative to that buyer build decision in terms of loyalty, customer retention, uh, margin growth, profitability. Like those are all great things relative to the cost of Link compared to hiring all of these people and building this internally. So, uh, you know, I, I forwarded this to all applicable uh, portfolio companies, maybe uh, Navi, you and I sync on on the company that I introduced you to. Uh, mm -hmm. Curious as to where that that went off. Uh, we'll talk about high it level, off. high level, good, but yes, okay, we'll good, follow up. Good, good, good. Um, but yeah, I, I and I, I think it's cool to have seen the company itself evolve as well, right? I I think you you and the team over at Link started with more of a generic thinking as a service offering and then really found a niche and, and value to which you can provide the market with and in this pay by bank uh, offering. So uh, a lot of a lot of credit to you and the team over there. So Navi, one of the things that we've talked about, we have a bit of a, a chat about data and AI. From a payment perspective, how do you see that fitting in? Because they're they're uh, and the with owning in a sense your own payment gateway and start collecting for for AI and yeah yeah so and from a data perspective yeah yeah so one of the things that we're toying around with obviously we have we have access to a lot of transactional uh, data we have access to a lot of device level data uh, as well as user profile data and you know to kind of to talk to what what Peter was was speaking about. You know, we're making sure that we're tagging things and, and doing some preliminary modeling of that uh, information itself. We think that there's an opportunity, not from a generative AI perspective, but from a purely AI perspective. Uh, and uh, that opportunity really has to come down to how we can simplify and increase the, the, the speed of transacting on a, a device, but also providing contextual financial tools. So one of the, the things or the the terms that I, I always talk about internally is contextual finance. There, there's an opportunity once you have a certain amount of financial data to provide specific lending products or even transactional products that are, are unique to the user and also unique to the experience and the moment that the transaction is happening. And those are, are really the opportunities that we're looking at when it comes to uh, the financial opportunity, at, at, at least at the merchant level. Um, those kind of also come down to personalized rewards, personalized transactions, or personalized payment um, financial tools. One of the holy grails of fintech has always been personalization. But when you look at personalization, at the moment at least, it's more in, in the sense of cohorts or approximates. We think that there's an opportunity to move beyond approximates and cohorts and more to a unique, specific user level uh, experience. But that comes with large, large data sets that we're just not ready to kind of unveil at the moment. And we also don't have those full data sets uh, modeled out yet. But I, I think that's the long term financial opportunity for us or sorry, the fintech opportunity for us is contextual financial uh, products. Well, and, and you can increase AOV relative to an individual note instead of say cohorts and throwing something that is only a matrices of a three by three, right? Like and now now you can be very, very specific as to who you're serving and what their their preferences are. hundred percent. hundred percent. I think that's the the main thing that if you can if you can uncover what those are, it becomes so there's there's two there's two well there's two ways that this could go. One is that 
you unlock a lot of opportunity, a lot of up, uh, financial up, um, you know, uh, uplift that could happen. The other problem that, or the other thing that could happen is a problem, which is this is really creepy. Uh, remember when retargeting was a new thing? It's like, why the hell am I being? Why am I seeing this? I was just talking about this, and I'm seeing it on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. So there's really two ways it could go. Um, so it comes down to the experience itself and in kind of the the way it's presented, and that's something that's going to take a lot of time to fine tune. I'd be interested in hearing an example of, of how you think that might look like, um, if, if if you're willing to share. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No worries. So. I, I'm my example that I always give is that you're in Walmart, and not only do we have um, data around your your recent transactional history, the way our product works, we also uh, again not being any and creeping, it's not in our system. We don't directly have access to it; it's protected. I just gotta always put a lot of prefaces there. We see uh, some transactional history, um, as well as some balance history. So based off of all these. Uh, these points and knowing the seasonality of the transactions that you do, as well as the time and date, let's say that you go to Walmart and uh, on the 4th, uh, because July 4th, I'm thinking about, but on the 4th of every month you go and you have a hundred dollar bill at Walmart. Now you go in there and there's only $80 in, in your account for that transaction. And you're, you're typically doing the same bulk amount of purchases. At the point knowing where you don't have enough funds for your normal transaction load, somebody, uh, preferably Walmart by leveraging our, a product like ours, is able to provide a contextual loan in the moment without all the heavy lifting of fill out, filling out forms and so on and so forth. So when you go to the checkout, you're able to check out with the full allotted value complete. Um, those are some really minor experiences where you remove the friction from from payments. Like for instance, I, I I like to think of it as like, you know, there's that moment when you first see an iPhone back in, you know, iPhone 3, 3G or whatever, where, you know, you saw it in Star Trek and whatnot, but you picked up a phone and you didn't see a, a bunch of buttons and a small screen. Literally everything that you wanted to look at was, you know, it, it was available to you and that device disappeared. I think that we need to remove the friction of cards and the thought of payments from the entire transactional flow. And part of it is to make it contextual and making it as frictionless as possible. And that just really isn't there yet. Yeah. And, and I mean, the under, underlying market, what like digital payments, cashless payments are supposed to grow to something like 82% yeah. growth between 2020 and 2025 and I think 61 to 2030. I guess yeah. it's the, the the underlying move to it is interesting. I, I do have a question though regarding mm. you know, Gen Z and yes. their, because they're a very, very interesting user cohort relative to they're, they're fickle and they, they have they change with the wind. So I can tell you a couple things if you really quickly on this. We we assumed for the last few years that they're credit heavy. The truth is that they're not credit heavy. In fact, they're right. seeing the impacts of the credit uh, environment. We're seeing extremely high delinquency rates at the moment with uh, the millennials and so on and so forth, like all those ages. And Gen Z are adapting with that as fast as possible. So what you're seeing is less credit utilization and higher debit slash cash utilization. Um, in fact, even when you look at older generations, so if you're talking about like millennials plus, you're seeing 67% of transactions running towards debit-based now nowadays in the U.S., with Gen Z have shifted 
from 40% being debit-based all the way up to about 80, what is it, 87, 80, 88% going towards debit-based now. So they're they're very fickle at the moment, but I, I think they're also learning that that debt is not as beneficial as they thought it was, or as we think it is in most cases, especially credit card debt. Yeah, because the mis big misconception is that the U.S. is driven by credit card transactions. The truth is that very, like 67% is debit-based. The rest is um, is a mixture of credit and cash. There's still, if you look in the south of, of the U.S., you have a very high cash, uh, cash society still built out. Uh, and also, obviously, depending on each location, you have the, 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 the impoverished areas still are obviously cash-driven. But then when you look into the you know, high net worth individuals, which don't make up the majority of, of, of the U.S., they're credit card based. Um, and, and even then, most people are living outside their means uh, and, and they're leveraging credit pretty heavily. But with with the situation that we're in right now, you're seeing extremely high delinquency rates. So that that credit utilization is starting to decrease over time. Uh, obviously, it'll rebound eventually, but I, I don't think credit is the right it, it is going to continue is going to get back to where it was before. OK, debt, well, um, uh... Well, I wanted to thank everyone. We're at time right now. Uh, I wanted to, uh, first of all, thanks our guests, Peter from Sea Chains Fund and Alex from Green Egg Ventures. Thanks for your valuable insights. We really appreciate it. And thanks for coming today. Uh, thanks for everyone to tuning into the Interchange Pass, uh, podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Link, feel free to visit us at www.trylink.com. Until next time, I'm your host, oh. Daniel, joined by Navi Awada.